You can turn to Daniel chapter 11. We're in Daniel chapter 11 today. Now let me ask you, how many of you would love to know the future? Anyone here? Oh, I see some shy hands up there. I bet most of us would love to know what's going on in the future. And in his book, Future Babble, there's a journalist, Dan Gardner, who writes about how people are obsessed with knowing the future, and in particular, with experts who claim to be able to predict future events. And he talks about, in the book, one study that came out of University of Pennsylvania uh, that did a 20-year analysis of 27,450 predictions from 284 experts. A lot of predictions and a lot of experts there. And the conclusion in the study was that the group of experts did little better and sometimes considerably worse than, quote, a dart-throwing chimpanzee. (laughs) They gave a few examples here. In 1968... The president of Anaconda Copper Mining Company. Anybody remember that one? Well, it's no longer around, even though they predicted that uh, the, the, the president predicted that their company would be around for 500 years. Less than 10 years later, they went out of business because of the fiber optics cable. In 1974, Paul Ehrlich confidently asserted if I were a gambler, I would take even money that England would not exist by the year 2000. I'm not a geography buff, but I'm pretty sure I saw England still on the map there a couple of years ago. Uh, One more thing here. In 2008, experts at Goldman Sachs predicted that the oil prices would surge to $200 per barrel in the next six months. Six months later... The price for petroleum was $34 a barrel, fell down. And so all of these experts are not doing very well. But the question then arises, if they're always getting it wrong or usually getting it wrong, then why do we keep listening to them? And according to Gardner, he says in his book that human beings hate uncertainty. He says, whether sunny or bleak, Convictions about the future satisfy the hunger for certainty. We want to believe, and so we do. And today we are in Daniel chapter 11. And we're going to be seeing in this chapter a number of prophecies from Daniel's future. From Daniel's time in the coming next couple of hundred years after he was alive. In fact... Most of the chapter that we're going to be looking at, 45 verses, are simply the angel telling Daniel what is to come. And uh, these prophecies are so precise, so accurate, that there's a group of scholars out there, even a few conservative scholars, that claim this chapter must have been added hundreds of years later because it is so accurate. I disagree with that, and most people who believe that the Bible is God's word are going to disagree with that. But I'm saying this to say that it is that accurate that people think it must not have been written at the time it was written. Could it have been? How would they have known everything that was to take place? And I'll point out a number of those things. So in the sermon today, I'm going to give you a look 
into Daniel's future. And it's a bleak future with prophecies of war and death. Now, as a warning to all of us, once we get into the passage, you're going to be tempted, unless you're a history buff, you're going to be tempted to drift off a little bit. Because it gets, at least from a 21st century perspective, it gets a little dry. And so I'm doing, I'm going to do my best to, to get through it fairly quickly. And then we're going to be talking about what we can learn about it. So I want to encourage you to hold on and to keep listening. Because after I talk about what this passage means, there's an important truth that we can take away from this. But we must hold on and listen and work our way through. So I hope to see no one sleeping in the sanctuary today. At least... No more than usual sleeping today. So I'm going to split Daniel 11, 45 verses. I'm going to split it into 11, or sorry, 11, Daniel 11 into four sections. Four sections. And I'm not going to read every single verse for the sake of time. But in each section, I'm going to point out sort of the, some of the main verses in there. And, and we'll look at those parts and work our way through the chapter. So here is section one. This is Xerxes and Alexander the Great, verses two through four. He says, the angel says, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall rise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty man shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. Now this part was previously prophesied in chapter 8. So if you were here for, those, for that sermon, you'll sort of remember some of the things that we talked about. That fourth richer kingdom or king that's mentioned in verse 2 is Xerxes the first. Xerxes the first. And he's actually the dude that got rid of his wife and married Esther, Queen Esther that we have a book of in the Old Testament. So that's the king that we're talking about. And Xerxes defeated, uh, was eventually defeated. And then there were some lesser known kings that, that took place that were around in Persia. But in the Persian king empire, but then comes Alexander the Great. And we know from history that after he dies, the kingdom is split in the four, just like the passage says. And so that is section one. But let's go to section two now. Many wars, many wars. It's going to cover a number, uh, seven different kings, actually, during this time. So these verses go over a 200 or so year period of back and forth wars between Egypt and Syria from the 300s to the 100s BC. And you may say, what does that have to do with the Israelites? Well, they were captive there and in between all these things that are taking place. 
And as I said before, the prophecies in this chapter are extremely precise. And so I'm going to read a couple of the verses here, and then I'm going to talk about what happened in history. And you're going to see just how accurate these prophecies are in Isaiah, or it's, uh, sorry, in Daniel, written hundreds of years prior. And so let's look at verse 6. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. Verse 8. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images, and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So I'm going to paraphrase what one uh, theologian from a commentary they wrote on Daniel. I'm going to paraphrase what he says because uh, he, he puts it all together nicely in a package that would take me far too long to try to put together myself. And so he talks about how in 250 B.C., Ptolemy II, who is the king of the south, attempted to make peace with Antiochus, also Antiochus, but I'll just say Antiochus, the king of the north. So we have, as the, as the, the scriptures say, the king of the north and the king of the south. And they try to make peace, he tries to make peace by sending his daughter, uh, Berenice, to marry him. And so the plan was for Antiochus to divorce his current wife and disinherit his current sons. But when the current, or when the current wife discovered the plot, he, she was obviously not thrilled about the idea, right? Uh, and so this is one woman that you don't want to cross. She had Antiochus and Berenice, the one that was going to be hooked up with Antiochus and actually had hooked up, and their young son, all poisoned, gone. That whole, that whole group there. And then in the same year, Berenice's father, though, dies in Egypt. And so he was succeeded by Berenice's brother, which scripture says someone from her own family, who then invaded the Seleucid kingdom and conquered its capital, Antioch, which is exactly as Daniel 11 is prophesying. This is why when, when you look at a scripture like this, listen, you either have to believe it or you have to come up with an excuse as to why you can't believe it. Oh, it must have been made up. Like uh, hundreds of years later, it must have been added. It must have been added. Or you can say that this is the word of God and that God, by the way, knows the future. And so we shouldn't be surprised that he can prophesy things like this, talk about things that are going to happen in the future. So listen, church, the word of God, as the Bible says, is living and active. It's true. And we have prophecies giving details hundreds of years before they ever happen. Continuing in section two now, there's wars and more wars. 
Power is going to go back and forth between different nations. And Israel is going to be caught up in the middle of these fights. Many people are going to suffer through that. So section 3 is now Antiochus IV. So the previous 15 verses were of seven, seven different kings, this, uh, which covered a 150-year period. This section covers 15 verses, but only covers a single king, Antiochus IV. Verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. And he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flattery. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken. Even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance has made with him, that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. So Antiochus was a Seleucid king. That's just another word for ancient Greece. And he came in with very little fanfare. Very few people knew him. But then he quickly grew in power. And anyone who went up against him, who opposed him, was quickly smashed. For example, uh, in verse 22, it talks about a prince. And that prince was likely, it's thought of, as the Jewish high priest, Onias III. And Onias resisted the pressures of the nation of, of this to conform to the Seleucids. And guess what happened to him? He was kicked out. He was gone. And so more wars came and went. And the Jews were often again trapped in the middle of everything going on. Of all the the fights that were happening between them. And so let's go on now to the fourth section. Which is from Antiochus to the Antichrist. So this is our last section that we're going to look at. This covers the last few verses, the last ten or so verses. So many, many prophecies, as I've talked about in the past, have what's called a dual fulfillment. Something that is fulfilled more immediately, but also many times has an ultimate or a further fulfillment, a fuller fulfillment down the road in in in, in history. And so this is likely sort of moving from one more immediate thing to fulfillment to a bigger fulfillment. I'll show you what I mean. And so let's start in uh, verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. And he shall prosper till the indignation is complete. For what is decreed shall be done. Now, as you can see, the, the language here is starting to get grander. Now, Antiochus did do some of the things as he willed, as the passage says in verse 36, the king did as he willed, but he didn't do everything he willed because he was constantly hampered in history by the Romans. But Antiochus did exalt himself. In fact, he had the name Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. So he thought he was God come to this earth. But once we get to verse 40, it starts to get more clear that we're no longer talking about Antiochus IV, but now it seems to be moving on to someone else. Verse 41. 
He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of the hand of Edom and Moab, and the main parts of the Ammonites. And he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Verse 45, he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now we know from history that Antiochus died during a minor, minor campaign in Persia in 164 BC. But here in verse 45, it says that this person dies between the sea and the glorious mountains. So there's a difference here in the two people. And so if this isn't Antiochus, then who could it be? I've already talked about that this angel is likely then speaking of the future future, speaking of the Antichrist. And let me read from the New Testament now, from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want you to listen to these two verses and see if you can identify some common, some common uh, themes between this and what the angel talked about in Daniel 11. Let no one deceive you in any way, Paul says. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And uh, almost everyone agrees that the man of lawlessness is another name for the Antichrist. We also know in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, in the smaller letters there, that there are many Antichrists, many people that are against Christ. In, uh, but in the end, there's one main Antichrist who's going to be defeated by Jesus. And this, is the, this idea rings true with what the angel's talking about in Daniel chapter 11. And so that is Daniel 11 in a nutshell. And so we're going to pause now. We're all going to take a quick breath. Everyone can get up and go to the bathroom. No, just kidding. And we're going to talk about the big question now that I want to ask. And that big question is, so what? So what? What can we learn from 21st century Christians, as 21st century Christians, what can we learn from this passage? Now, some of you are here in this room, and you're retired, you're in what they call the senior years. What can you learn as someone who's been through most of your life? What can you learn from this passage? Now, some of you, others, are just starting life. Maybe high school is coming up in just a few weeks. Maybe you're just about to have a child. Or maybe you're, you're in those busy years with the children running around causing problems. Or, or maybe you're working full time. And so for, for those different groups of people, what can you all learn from a passage like this? And so I want us to think back to chapter 10. And this was the beginning of the section there. And why, let's think about why was the angel coming to Daniel to tell him all of this? And if you remember, Daniel had been praying and fasting for three weeks. And then he was upset that his people, 
that they, they had gone back to Jerusalem, but they had stopped building the temple because of the opposition and suffering that they were going through. And so he was there in chapter 10, mourning and praying and fasting for his people because of what was going on. But then the angel comes to him. Takes him a little while, takes him 21 days to get there, but he gets there. And he then gives him this message that we see in chapter 11 now. And it's a message that basically says, if we're looking at this, Daniel, if you think it's bad now, just wait. Now, how is that encouraging? Over the next 400 years, Daniel, your people are just going to continue to suffer and suffer and suffer. But then, finally, at the end of chapter 11, he says that the Antichrist would be defeated. And listen to what the angel says at the very beginning of chapter 12, because this is where the message sort of turns. Verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Oh, that's not sounding good, is it? Verse 2. Or close to verse 2. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And some who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those, who turn, uh, many, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. So it's as if the angel is saying in chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 12, Daniel, I hate to, to tell you this, but it's going to get worse. For Israel, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. But then, one day, all the bad will be destroyed. And one day, everything that went wrong will be made right. That's what the angel is telling him. And so he wanted, he's wanting Daniel here to see the big picture, that, that there's going to be suffering. But in the end, everything's going to be made all right. And so here's the main idea that I want, that I want you to take away from this passage. And that is that trials come and go. Nations fight against nations. People fight against people. People die. People get sick. All this. But God will make things all right in the end. And so let's live with this big picture perspective in mind. The angel was not minimizing Daniel's pain. He instead was giving Daniel a new thing to think about, a new perspective. That in the end, God will make things right. And those were meant to encourage Daniel, not drag him down. I've shared in the past, uh, past stories. How when I was in college, I worked at the Fairfield Inn by Marriott. While I, worked in Tulsa, while I went to school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so Monday through Friday, I would go to class, 
I would study sometimes. But then Friday would come. Early Friday evening, I would go to church. Our church had a Friday evening service. After church, my friends and I would go get a drink, not at the bar, but at Sonic. We'd get our strawberry limeades. But then at 11 p.m., I would walk into Fairfield Inn in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I would not walk out again until 7 a.m. And I would do this on Saturday night, fr- Friday night and Saturday night. Now, for those of you who know me, you know that I'm a night person. I, I love staying up at night. But I am not an all-night person. And so I hated working this job. By 4 a.m., every night, every time I was there, by 4 a.m., I was literally questioning life's, my life's purpose here. How did I get here? How did I get into this situation where I am nodding off in the back room, trying to stay awake so I don't get in trouble. I would get random calls like, hey, uh, I see throw up in the hallway. And I'm like, uh, thanks, thanks. One night, someone came to me and asked if I could turn the lights off in the pool area so that they could skinny dip. I would get calls all the time complaining about noisy neighbors, like I had the power to go in there and and, and zip their mouths. And you may be wondering at this point, Kyle, if you hated it so much, why didn't you quit? But here's the reason why, because I wasn't working in this job for fun. I was working there for a paycheck. I was working there because I wanted money to pay for gas for my car. I wanted money so that I could buy Sonic Route 44 strawberry limeades whenever I wanted. I wanted money so that if I ever was able to go out on a date, if a girl said yes, I would be able to. Turns out I didn't need a lot of money in those years, but... And so I was willing to suffer Friday and Saturday night for the future benefit of cold, hard cash. It also didn't help that I got free donuts throughout the night as well. Unlimited donuts, all you can eat. Now church, just like the angel was giving Daniel perspective, all of us would do well to live with the big picture perspective. Doing this will help us in a number of different ways in our life. And so for the rest of the time, I'm going to talk about Uh, four or five different ways that having a big picture perspective will help us. And so here's the first one, that a big picture perspective helps helps us make it through suffering. And I've talked about this before. I actually talked about this just a a couple of of weeks ago. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But it's important to mention because this is really what the angel is telling Daniel. He's saying, Daniel, endure because it's going to get better down the road. But when we have a big picture perspective, we have more stamina to make it through the suffering. Now notice I didn't say that God takes away the suffering. I'm saying that God, that that knowing what's going to happen down the road will help us make it through to the end. Last year, I read Schwarzenegger's autobiography. And he talked about how when he would train for competitions, that he would lift weights for five hours a day. 
Any, any of you like that here? A few of you? It's, oh, uh, Richard, you, you went to adjust your glasses. I thought, I thought you were about to raise your hand. Would we all agree that lifting weights is not enjoyable? Maybe some of you do it, but it's not something, whoo, yeah, it stinks. So why do we do it then? Why would he do it for five hours a day? And the answer is results. Results, that, that's how he got those big muscles in addition to the shots he was taking. But that's how he got the big muscles. And church, listen, suffering stinks. But in faith, we believe that God will come through in the end. And that in the end, it will all be worth it. And so our big picture perspective helps us endure suffering. Here's the second area that I want to talk about, that a big picture perspective helps us prioritize life. When you see things from a big picture perspective, you have an overall better perspective on life. You see things that seem important at the time that with a big picture perspective, you realize are not really all that important in the end. As you know, I, I worked as a hospital social worker before I became a pastor. And working in the hospital, it was not uncommon to go and work with people or talk to people who were nearing the end of their life. Some were in hospice, some were close to hospice. And when I would speak with these people, I can tell you some subjects that never came up. We never talked about politics, not because we were avoiding it, but because they were close to death and by that point they didn't care. No one ever talked about their money at that point. I never heard one peep about the car that they drove. That's because when you're at the end of your life, you have a bigger, a different perspective on things. And in the end, cars and wealth and politics, they're not life's greatest concerns. Now, having a big picture perspective, it shouldn't just impact the end of our life. If we're smart, it'll impact our life before that. It'll impact our life right now. And so I'm not saying here that, that we shouldn't have a car. I'm not saying we shouldn't have money. We shouldn't have political beliefs. None of that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that all these things, all these things of the world should all be under the lordship of Jesus Christ should all be under his authority. And that's why Jesus said here in Matthew 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's a big picture perspective look at life from a, on the spiritual side of things. That if you chase after these unprofitable things and lose your soul over it, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And so I'm going to go to the next big picture perspective. It's sort of a, an offshoot of this one, of priorities in life. And I recognize that this one's going to get a little bit uncomfortable. So a big picture perspective will change the way we use money. In 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so loving money, church, with uh, loving money is living with a small perspective. And loving money will cause us to focus on the wrong priorities in life. Bruce Wilkinson says, When you serve God, you are using God's money to accomplish his wishes. But when you serve money, you are using God's money to accomplish your wishes. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but where moths or moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'd also say where your treasure is shows where your perspective is in life. And so in other words, if you love money, you're going to be focusing on building up treasures on earth. And instead, Jesus is telling us, don't put all your treasure in the earthly stuff, but instead put some of those treasures in heaven. And so let's invest in heavenly causes. So here's the uncomfortable part here. So what I'm going to say is, what I'm about to say is going to sound self-serving as the pastor of the church. But my goal here, my job as a pastor is not just to say things you like to hear. Sometimes I have to say things that people don't like to hear as well, because I want you to understand and obey what the Bible says. So I don't have time to read all the verses of what it says about giving and, and offering and tithing. But in your bulletin or in your teaching sheets, I've put down the verses in 1 Corinthians 16 and then also 2 Corinthians 8. And here's uh, what we must remember from those passages about money. Since God has blessed us, we are called to be a blessing to others. And one of the ways that we do that is by giving a monetary offering to our local church to meet physical and spiritual needs of those in our community. And so doing this is living with a big picture perspective. And when we look big picture, we recognize that our money is not ours, but it's God's. It's God's that he's blessed us with that we're just holding on to for a time. I mean, for those of you who have cash in your pocket right now, if you were to take it out, would you say, was that your dollar from the beginning? Or have other people used it in the past? And will that always be there in your possession? Or at some point, are you going to be going on and that dollar is going to be outliving you most likely? You see, when we look big picture, we recognize that money is not ours to just hold on to and do what we want with. It's God's, and it's for his glory. And God does not want us to spend everything on earthly things, on earthly treasures. And so instead, he wants us to bless others with the treasures that we've been given with. Given with. Jim Elliott, who was a missionary and um, was martyred by a tribe in South America, he said this, He is no fool who gives up 
what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, there's a lot of negatives in there, so let me rephrase this quote to make it a little bit more uh, easy to understand. This is the Kyle paraphrase. You are super smart if you let go of things that will not last in order to gain things that will last. But if you're more of a New England direct kind of person, here's the New England paraphrase as well. You are stupid if you try to hold on to things that will not last at the expense of losing things that will last. And maybe you're feeling a a little stir inside, like, like, oh, maybe I should be giving to the church. But you, you don't think you can. You don't have the money to do it. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to start somewhere. To start small, but start somewhere in faith. And so each week when you come in here, maybe it's $1, maybe it's $5, maybe it's $100, whatever you're able to, whatever you choose to give, I want you to drop it in the bucket or push the little button on your phone. But when you do that, I I want you to say, God, I thank you that you've blessed me with this treasure. And so now use what I'm giving today to bless others. And because that is what we're giving towards when we give to the ministries here at church. And over time, we're going to see God bless that small step of faith. And who knows, maybe that small step of faith will grow larger. But either way, God's going to bless that. So let's go on now. We can shake off the uncomfortable money talk now. And we're going to talk about one other area. A big picture perspective helps us live a godly life. Knowing how things end should lead you to live the right way in the days that you have left. Because we know that God is going to be victorious in the end. And so who's the best one to stick close to during our days here? In Daniel 11, Daniel saw a future where his people would be tempted, would be threatened, and would even be killed for their beliefs. And some of these people would give in to the temptation, but others would not, and others would even be martyred. And why? Let me read verse 32 again. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. When you know your God you're far more inclined to live in a way that glorifies him. And so maybe today you're you're living in a way that's not glorifying him. Uh, Maybe it's a matter of getting sin out of your life, but maybe it's also a matter of simply growing in your relationship with God, of learning more about who he is and worshiping him more. I like how one commentary puts it. He says, such an act of laying down your life for what you believe looks like the ultimate foolishness to the world. And that's what happened in Israel that was talked about in Daniel chapter 11. He says, the Lord, however, calls it wisdom. How can such a horrific death be wise? And it's wise because the persecutor's fire has no power to inflict real hurt on the believer. 
As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body. Know which one you're going to fear the most. And that persecutor with the gun, or that persecutor with the badge, or that persecutor with the biggest publicity may, may look like they're the scariest. But in reality, they are nothing in comparison to God Almighty. And so when we live our life, let's live in a way that we're going to stay on, on God's side, not on the side of people who, in the long run, can do nothing, nothing to our souls. Let me close with this thought here. As some of you know, I have chickens at my house. They're decreasing in number thanks to something or someone, but right now we have about 10. And recently we hatched some, some baby chicks. And most of them were hatched in a little incubator in our dining room, but one of them slipped through the cracks. I guess pun intended there. And was born under his mommy in the coop. And so since he, she was born there, we just said, fine, stick with the mom. And as this little chick has grown, she follows her mommy everywhere her mommy goes. And the moment, we, we, we see this every day, the moment that the mommy wanders off where the baby can't go, maybe it's a big step, that the, baby, the, the little baby there just sort of gets separated from the mommy, this little baby chick starts tweeting with a passion. This little thing, tweet, 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 tweet. Now why is she doing that? She's doing that because this little chick, as young as she is, she knows that there is nowhere better and nowhere safer to be than right next to her mommy. And likewise, when we have a big picture perspective, we will know that there is nowhere better and nowhere safer to be than close to Jesus. But we don't do this through tweeting. We don't tweet. We do this through our actions. And our equivalent to tweeting are actions like prayer, reading and obeying the Bible, living by faith, trusting that God knows best, and telling others about Jesus. These are steps of faith that God tells us to do. These are things that we do as followers of Jesus Christ. And as followers of Christ, we want to follow Christ and stick close to him. And these also are big picture actions that keep us close to the one that we know is the one we want to stick close to. And so today I want to encourage you to leave committed to living with a big picture perspective. Because when we do that, our life will be different. Maybe not better from a human standpoint, but it will be different. And we will make a difference in this world. I'm going to go ahead and spend a moment now in prayer. Worship team, you can come on up. Let's go ahead.